You may be seated. Our passage today is in Ephesians 1, so if you want to, please turn there. Uh, but we're going to review a little bit because last week, Todd, uh, he shared from Revelation chapter 2. And he looked at the letter that was written in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. He looked at the letter that was written to Ephesus. Now, the book of Ephesians, obviously, is written to the same people. But Todd showed us a view from the future of what God had seen was happening in that church. And one of the things that was challenging last week, Todd asked us, is where is your love? Because the question that he asked the church of Ephesus or not a question, he just made a statement. He said that you have fallen away from your first love. You've lost your first love. They were doing many things right, and he commends them for the ways that they were standing in truth and dedicating themselves even to ministry and other things. But he said you've ultimately left your first love. And so now, today, we're going to look at Ephesus from when it was written to and the things that Paul writes to them and encourages them in. Now, I want to do a little bit of background information on the church of Ephesus. Uh, mark down in your notes, Acts 19. That really is, that chapter in the book of Acts speaks about Paul's missionary journey to the city of Ephesus. Very briefly, I'm going to describe some of the things that were happening there. One of the things is they had one of the seven wonders of the world there, the Temple of Artemis. It was massive, to say the least. It was a massive structure, but it also had massive consequences for the culture in Ephesus. Pagan cult of Artemis was all over the place there. One of the other things about Ephesus is it was probably the second largest city in the Roman Empire, second only to Rome. Highly influenced by Roman law, by Roman culture. But it was very wealthy, very wealthy. It was a port city, a lot of trade going on there. So it was expansive to go to. Another thing happening there was there was dark magic, sorcery, other things like that. We'll look at that a little bit. But there were lots of instances of demonic oppression, uh, demonic activity there. Uh, One fun story in Acts 19 is Paul is going around sharing the gospel. He spent the longest amount of time there. He actually spent three years in Ephesus. The closest to that was a year and a half that he spent in Corinth. But as he's in Ephesus... One of the things that happens is this guy named Demetrius, who's a silversmith, he makes little idols to sell of Artemis. And he gets upset that Paul is ruining his business because people are turning to Christ and now they don't need these little idols of Artemis. And he invokes the rest of the guys to say, listen, he's he's saying that Artemis is nothing. He's taking away her magnificence. And he's saying that she's nothing, even though she's worshipped in all of Asia and the whole world. And so he incites a riot. And there's, they go into the, the theater in Ephesus, which was a massive structure itself. 20,000 people could sit in this theater. And he gets all these people to come in. And these people don't even know why they're really doing this. It's just confusion. And they go in there and they start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And Paul, typical Paul, Paul says, This is a great opportunity to have an evangelistic crusade. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to witness to him. And his friends are holding him back going, you're cra- they will kill you. They will tear you apart. You're the guy that they're yelling against. And so eventually this guy goes in there and he quiets them down. But they were shouting for two hours. Greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And he says, listen, guys, you know that we are the temple keeper of Artemis. You know, apparently a meteor or something fell down and they fashioned an idol out of this meteor to Artemis. And they're like, you know that the stone fell. We all know this happened. So what he's saying is not that big of a deal. In fact, if you keep doing this, the Romans are going to come and get you guys because you're inciting a riot. Go home. Go home. And so you see that Paul is writing to a church where this worship of Artemis is oppressive. And I would argue that many of them are probably discouraged at this time, where they're in this culture, again, where it is massively against the name of Jesus. Because Artemis is better, and they have all these other practices, and the demons are there very strongly through other things like sorcery. And so Paul writes this book of Ephesians 10 years after he was there, and it's written from prison. He's in house arrest at this time, and he's, written to, he's writing to them to encourage them to stand confident, confident in the midst of anything that they're going through, whether it's against them from the culture or from even friends and family. And he tells them, listen, Jesus, Jesus is the Lord. That's what you focus on. Jesus is the Lord. And so in chapters 1 through 3, which we're going to talk about uh, over the next three months, this is really looking at the gospel story or the meta-narrative, the grand story of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's the focus of Ephesians 1 through 3. And so we have our theme is built together. Ephesians 1 through 3. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, look at what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And that's the very thing that holds you together. And all the Bible, all of history, in fact, is testifying to the need and the power of Jesus Christ. I want you to know there's no command, really, in these passages in 1 through 3. The closest we have is in chapter 3, verse 13, where he says to the Ephesians, hey, guys, listen, don't lose heart. That's the closest we get to a command. So if you're coming here wanting a list of things that we need to do as we leave, that's later. Right now, we just need to focus on the gospel story so that you and I can understand our story. So in chapters 4 through 6, next year, we'll be looking at that. He says, listen, once you get this grand story, then you can start fitting your story into it. But you can't get all of these commands by themselves because this is the story you have to understand first. And it's all about our identity in Jesus Christ. So God is going to be the focus, and in particular, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's start reading verses 1 and 2. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he writes, as he typically does, that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. That gives him authority. But he says that this is all given to him by the will of God. One thing also to note is Acts 9 is the conversion of Paul. Acts 9, Paul was against the church. He was against the people of God. And God showed up to him on the road to Damascus against what he desired. He wasn't anticipating this at all. And God saved him and changed his direction forever. And so he was very acutely aware of the fact that it was simply by God's will that he was an apostle and that he had everything that he received. He says to the saints who are in Ephesus, the term saints there is the idea of those who are called out, those who are holy. And this term is typically used in the Old Testament to talk about God's people, the nation of Israel. They're the the ones who are holy, those who are called out. He called them out from the rest of the nations. Same idea. We are saints. We are called out from the world to himself. 
And he says that they are in Ephesus. Again, location, where he's writing to in particular. Then he has this phrase, they're faithful in Christ Jesus. The term faithful there is really the idea of, one, they are believers in Christ Jesus, so they have faith in Christ Jesus, but that they're also committed to him. The understanding is those two go together. If you're faithful in Christ Jesus, you have faith in Christ Jesus, but then you're also committed to Christ Jesus. Let me tell you something. The Bible doesn't know a follower of Jesus who is not faithful to him. And I want you to know that they are in Christ Jesus. In other words, this truth doesn't apply to everyone. Not everyone is holy. It's only those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul finishes it with simply a statement, grace to you and peace. Now grace and peace are, I would say, the defining characteristics of the new covenant. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something that Paul would argue is the heart of the gospel. It's the very thing that you and I must rely on. It is absolutely necessary for us to understand that salvation is simply by his grace. And that salvation, that grace, gives us peace. The word shalom there, it's a typical thing of saying well-being, blessing to you, peace. I think of what he promised, God promised in Ezekiel 37, that he would make with us a covenant of peace. And now we have peace with one another because of the fact that we are in Christ. I have to picture that as the Ephesians are wrestling over what's happening, they're probably scared. And I have the picture, whenever I think of peace, I think of a, a parent holding a baby who's crying. And they're just kind of, shh, just kind of rocking the baby. Shh. And eventually, Lord willing, the baby stops crying. Sometimes the baby doesn't. But it's just the fact that the presence of love and peace is there with the child. And it's just that, shh, you're okay. I'm here. And this comes to us from God, our Father. Isn't that amazing? God is our Father. He cares for us as children. And the fatherhood of God is stressed here. And it's going to be stressed later on in our passage, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But notice also it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Another major theme of this book is the exaltation of Jesus. Ephesians doesn't really focus a lot on the death of Jesus. Many books do. They talk about how it was necessary for Christ to die. Here he talks about how it was necessary for Christ to be exalted. And so when he says the Lord Jesus Christ, he is Lord in the way that only God can be Lord. And so when he says from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, they're even. It's both coming from them. It's coming from the two. And so that is very important that we see that. And already the focus is upward. See that? Grace and peace from from where? Where am I getting this? It's from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 3 through 14 is actually one giant section. And so the next three weeks, we're going to break it up into three sections. I'm doing part one, verses 3 through 6. But one of the things we want to know about this is that it starts with this idea of blessing God. This is not foreign to the Bible. In fact, it's, it's a Hebrew poem of blessing. Hebrew poems are often written in, let's say, the Psalms, give examples of this. This is all over the Old Testament. Take, for instance, Psalm 28.6. It says, blessed be the Lord. And then it tells you why. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Look also at 
68.19. It says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up, because God is our salvation. And then Psalm 103.1 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Now we're going to have a little Hebrew lesson here. The, the Hebrew word for this is a berecha. So turn to your neighbor and look them right in the face and say berecha. Go ahead, try it. If, if you got a little bit of spit and spittle on your face, that's exactly what you need to have. Well done. You just got a berecha blessing on your face. Congratulations. But what it's doing is every single time they do this, they set this up, they're praising God because he alone is the one who can do this. So you have the example saying, blessed be the Lord because he did this stuff. He's the only one who could have done that for me. Blessed be the Lord because he did this for me. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless him, bless him. And he's turning and he's saying, and Paul starts here saying, listen, this is stuff that only God is able to do. Only God can do this for us. And so the focus is first on what God has done. And so we're going to title this section, 3 through 14, God's Transcendent Blessings for Believers. So the first blank there is Transcendent Blessings for Believers. Okay. Now, we have the word transcendence up on one of the banners over there. God's presence is his transcendence. Notice the arrows are pointing up and down because this is a vertical focus. The word transcendent means things like it's beyond or above us. It's not subject to the limitations of the material universe, what we, what we have right here. Okay? So we know that. Like God is not limited by anything that is in the material universe. Okay? We get tired. God does not grow tired. The other thing we see is that it must be revealed to us. Unless God shows us these things, we would not know this. We would not come to this by ourselves. It's not like we walk around and we go, oh, there's transcendence. Oh, look, there's a little bit of transcendence. We think we have a little bit of transcendence when we admire things like a sunset. There's almost something transcendent about it. Or I talk about holding a baby. There's something transcendent and something beyond you when you realize what is happening there. And there's those moments where you have this idea of transcendence. But this idea of transcendence is exactly what only God can do. And if he doesn't reveal it, we would never know it. And so the Bible talks about it in terms of a mystery. And what we're going to read in 3 through 14 over the next three weeks is really the bedrock of our faith. If we don't have this, we really don't have anything. We don't have anything. And because we have this, we have everything. It's amazing. It's amazing. And this is true of every believer in Jesus Christ, these words. And it's only true for believers in Jesus Christ. And so let's read together verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice again that the first thing is that he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The focus immediately is on the purpose and plan of God the Father. The focus is on what God has accomplished in our Lord, Jesus Christ. Okay? And he says that he's blessed us in Christ. You can't receive any of this, any of this apart from Christ. And he says that he's blessed us, I don't even know how to describe this, but it's every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And let's admit, this is probably our greatest struggle, is grasping the reality of what we're going to be talking about here. Because he says it's every spiritual blessing, and where is it located? It's in the heavenly places. 
In other words, we can't see it. It's immaterial. I can't walk around and say to you, hey, look at how many spiritual blessings I have. Look at them all. Just pulling them out of my pocket. Look, I got a storehouse. Look, I got a closet full of spiritual blessings at home. I can't show you any of them. I can't give a gift of spiritual blessings to you, really. Because then you go, oh, wow, thanks. Thanks for these spiritual blessings. You can't do it. Immaterial. Because where are they? They're in the heavenly places. But notice that what he's saying to us is that our perspective has to change. Our perspective is so often here. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to point you to the very place that we all need to be focused, and it's in the heavenly places. And again, what we're seeing here is what God has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. And let me be honest with you. This is the reason why we do anything that we do in Christianity. This is the reason why we pray. This is the reason why I read the Bible and why I need to read the Bible. Because too often, my prayers are focused on these things right right here, which is good. It's okay. But the truth that Paul prays for us is that our eyes would be open to understand the very things that he's seeing here. That our eyes would be fixed upward. That our eyes would be moved up to the heavenly places. I think of Colossians 3. And you don't need to turn there. Just listen. He says this. He says, listen, you guys have been raised with Christ. And since that's true, you need to set your heart on things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. He says, because you died and your life is hidden with Christ. And where's Christ? Christ is in heaven. And so he says, when Christ returns, then we will appear with him in glory. I think of Philippians 3. He says of people that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why are they enemies of the cross of Christ? He says, because their God is their stomach. Their appetites just here. Their mind is set on earthly things. And then he says this, but you, listen, your citizenship is in heaven. And we wait for Jesus to come back from there. Again, same message. Our citizenship is in heaven. Church, I'll be honest, that's something that I do not understand. Nor do I even think that I live with a right understanding of that. That my citizenship first is in heaven. That my identity is first found in the heavenly places. First. Yeah, I'm I'm a pastor. I'm a, a father. I'm a husband. But first of all, I'm in Christ. I am a citizen of heaven. And he's saying, listen, you have every spiritual blessing. In other words, everything that you need is already given to you in Jesus Christ. The most important things that we can pursue are those heavenly things. Imagine Paul has a table right here. And he's sitting behind the table, and he says, okay, here, look, I'm going to put just a bag full of spiritual blessings right here, every spiritual blessing right here. I'm just going to put it right here. Again, we can't because it's immaterial. But let's just imagine he puts it on the table, and he says, okay, what would you put on the table that you have that would be of the same value as these right here? What would you put right here? What would you pursue? What would you think is better? Remember, Todd asked us, where is the love? In other words, what are you valuing in this world? Because he just puts down this lump of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And too often I think I put down my comfort. I put down money. I put down happiness, love, relationships, all of it. I put down all the pursuits that I've ever had. And he says, okay, thank you, I'll take those in here. You can have all of these. And I'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, I get these? And sometimes I don't value the very things that he is saying to you. (laughs) This is the most valuable thing you could 
ever, ever have. One example of this is actually in the city of Ephesus. In Acts 19, you can read about it. These people, when they came to Christ, they gave their books of witchcraft, of sorcery, and they brought them to be burned. And the Bible says that the cost of these books was, I believe, 50,000? 50,000 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver, okay? Now, we don't know what kind of pieces of silver they are. They might be a denarii, or it might be a talent. If it's a denarii, that would be a day's wage. That would equal, in our day, five and a half million dollars, okay? Some of you are like, wow, that's quite a bit. If it's a talent, that's a year's wage. If it's 50,000 pieces of a talent, it would be $1.5 billion that they burned in the sight of everybody. Said, hey, we're following Jesus now. All this stuff that I thought was valuable, I'm literally going to dump it in a pile and burn it. Imagine just burning five and a half million dollars in front of everybody. Said, I don't need that. I don't need any of that stuff. I look at that and I go, that's ludicrous. Sell it on eBay for crying out loud. Do something with it. Get some money. That'd be great. No, they burn it. They say, I'm getting rid of that. That's gone. Church, that's amazing. But that's exactly what he's saying. Listen, you gave that up, but you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything. And here's the truth. So often we're pursuing things that change. I thought about the separation between the spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and the blessings that we chase on the earth. These never change. Let's be honest about how often these things change. Think about the pursuits, the things that you value, the things that you spend your time doing. Lord willing, you've stopped doing things as a teenager that you used to do, that you really liked to do, and then as you grew up, you pursued other things. You saw other things more important. Think about finances. How many of you have had many jobs? Maybe some of you don't have a job right now and you're pursuing a job. Think about financial situation. For some of you, they've drastically changed over the course of your life. For some of you, how about your family? Some of your family is expanding. Some of your your family dynamics are drastically changed. Some of them, they're really great. Some of them, they're awful and they're painful. And you don't like any of them. They've changed. Think of your health. I think of some of the prayer requests that we have in terms of health. How quickly our health changes. One minute, we're fine. The next minute, we're in the hospital, shocked. Just think how quickly these things that we're pursuing, and we pursue these things, they're so quickly gone. And he says, listen, there's something that never changes, so keep looking up. Keep looking towards the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places. And in fact, the first two spiritual blessings we're going to deal with today, they were secure for you and I before the foundation of the world. So these things haven't changed since the very, very, very beginning. So look at, with me at verse 4. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So he says, listen, here's the first reason why God is to be praised. It's because you and I have been chosen in Christ. You and I have been chosen in Christ. He says, even as, or the idea is because. Hey, listen, you want to know a reason to praise God? You want to know your spiritual blessing? Get this one in your mind. God has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world. 
One thing to note here, God is the one choosing you. God's the one who initiated it. And he chose two things. He chose us and Christ. He chose us individually. Yes, every single one who names the name of Jesus was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The other thing he chose was for us to be in Christ. So he also chose Christ. That we would be united to Christ. Think of this. God is over here in eternity past thinking about you and choosing you before you even existed. So all of this took place simply in his mind. No material universe existed yet. Nothing. He's in, you're in his mind. And he's not only had you in his mind, who don't exist yet, but he chose you in Christ as we know that he died for our sins. And he chose us in him that way before he did anything at all. So our unity to Christ was secure before the foundation of the world. He says, you want something secure? Wrap your mind around that one. Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen. Why? And he says that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice this is the idea of making us holy and blameless. In other words... The fact that we need to be made holy and blameless shows that we're not that previously. He chose us to be holy and blameless because we're not by nature holy and blameless. In other words, he didn't choose us at all because we were holy and good. He chose to make us holy and good. No one deserves to be chosen is exactly what he says. This is the word and the idea that we get of election. Election. You would say to me, oh, I hate that word. I absolutely hate that word. That's such a divisive word. Well, let me just make it very simple. You are saved because God chose you to be saved. That's that's it. You're saved because God chose you to be saved. And you would say to me, well, I chose to be saved. And I would say to you, yes, yes, you did. You did freely. But that's because God chose you before the foundation of the world. You say, no, 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 I decided to be a Christian. I remember, it was this thing, and I moved forward, and I decided to become a Christian. And I said, exactly. I totally agree with you. Amen. You did. You did freely. You came forward because God decided for you to be united to Christ before the foundation of the world. Isn't that great? Like, That doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly what it's saying. It says God chose people to be saved in Christ and to eventually be with him in all eternity, holy and blameless. And all of this happened before anything ever even existed. So already he starts with two bookends. He starts with, here is eternity past. You want to see how confident you can be? Here is eternity past. And God has chosen for you to be holy and blameless before him, which is the idea of glorification all the way in the future. God is the author and he is the perfecter of your faith. He's the one who is the first and the one who is the last. And he chose to bring you there so that you would be here. That's amazing, church. That's a rich spiritual blessing. And let me tell you something. This is meant for encouragement. Why is this doctrine important? Again, there's a lot of ideas about election, but let me tell you something. The doctrine of election is important, first and foremost, that you and I would understand rightly that salvation is simply from the Lord. No one else gives this to you. You don't give this to yourself. It is given freely by his grace. And there's nothing in us that generated God 
to choose us. There's nothing that God looked at and says, oh, look at that, Charles, he's a knucklehead, but he's going to be a good guy, so I'm going to go ahead and choose him before the foundation of the world. No, he didn't. He looked at me and goes, oh, man, man, I'm going I'm to love that guy because I want to love that guy, so I'm choosing that guy. That's it. Nothing in me. Let's look at some of these passages behind us. John 1. 12 and 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, notice this, he gave the right to become children of God. How did they get this right? They were born, well, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but they were born simply of of God. They were born of the will of God. Look at John 6. John 6 says, No one, just Jesus, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. I want you to picture a bucket of water. How do you get the water out of the bucket? Do you yell at the water? Do you get out of there! Come on! You can do it. No. It's literally someone drawing the water. Taking it. Just think of a ladle. Drawing it out. And bringing it somewhere else. That's exactly what he says. Unless the father draws him, he's not coming. Look at John 10, 26. He says this to the religious leaders who are talking to him. He says, listen, you don't believe me because you're not among my sheep. He says, my, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He says, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. He says, there are sheep that will hear my voice and they will come and they will follow me. Why? Because the Father's given them to me. That's why I can have confidence in telling people about Christ. Because I don't know who the sheep are. God does. And so when I go and I talk to people, all I'm trying to find is God's sheep. Hey, where are they? Where are they? There's one. Oh, there's one. There's one. And I'm excited about God's sheep coming back to the shepherd. That's exactly what he's saying. He says, but that's true of all of us. And then 2 Timothy 1.9 says this. Again, Paul writes, he says, listen, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. It's not because of our works. It's because of his own purpose and grace, and he gave us this in Christ Jesus. When? Before the ages began. Same exact thing. He said, there's nothing that God looked at in you to say, hey, I I think I might choose that guy. It was decided before the ages began. Church, this is for believers. And let me say, secondly, not only is salvation from the Lord, but it's meant to give us confidence and encouragement too often. And I've done this myself. I use election and the free will debate, and it's it's usually a reason to have division. You realize that it's usually believers fighting over this stuff. The very thing that's meant to give us encouragement and confidence before God is the very thing that that Satan will use to divide people. Oh, you're free will? You're a knucklehead. Oh, you're election? You're a wacko. And people are arguing against one another. He says there is never a time in the Bible that this is negative. Can I just tell you? Not one time is election negative in the Bible. It is always overwhelmingly positive. Always overwhelmingly positive. One of the greatest passages that we find so much hope is Romans 8. Romans 8. You know what it says? It says, those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. In other words, God is the one who's going to work it all the way to glorification. But it started with you being predestined. And then Paul stops and he goes, what are we going to say to these things? What in the world can I say to these things? He says, if God's for me, 
Who can be against us? Who? He says, if he didn't spare his son, but he gave, us, gave him up for us all, how is he not also going to, with him, graciously give us everything? Who's going to bring any charge against God elect, God's elect? Who can do it? God has elected them before the foundation of the world. Who's going to bring a charge against his people? No one. God is the one who justified. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, and he's sitting at the right hand of God. And he's praying for us. Do you really think that God's going to be against us? No. He's already just working out his plan from the beginning. And then he asks this wonderful question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Again, that love was shown to us all the way back here. He says, who's going to separate us from this love? It's tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, it's not. He says, as it's written, for your sake, Paul's writing to them, listen, I'm being killed all the day long. I'm regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered. That never removes me from God's love. He says, no, 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 let me tell you something. In all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, I am sure of this. Listen, I'm as sure as that, that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, any high power, anything in the present or anything that we're going to face in the future, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that's why he's reminding them first and foremost, Ephesians, you were chosen. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You're facing difficulty? Guess what? The God of the highest heavens chose you in him before the foundation of the world. You're struggling with sin? Does God even care? God, I can't do this. Guess what? He loved you before the foundation of the world. What you're doing doesn't change his view of you. He's loved you. Repent and turn from it, but he doesn't change his love towards you. It's been fixed since the foundation of the world. Church, that's amazing. This is all of God. And let me remind you, he's literally just been waiting to see it happen in reality. And that's why he moves on to the next one he talks about in verse 5. The next blessing we have is that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Next thing, he's adopted us to sonship. To sonship. And it says in love he did this. Again, a, a great reminder. This isn't a passive, cold choice of God. It's not like he's like, all right, that guy. Remember that lady over there? That one, yeah. No, he's, he's looking forward to loving. He's choosing in love. And he's anticipating you coming to sonship. It's amazing. And again, the idea of predestination is that he chose it beforehand. Again, the idea there is that, again, it's before the foundation of the world. Predestined us, chose beforehand. Why did he choose us beforehand? Because he wanted us as his sons. Wanted us as his sons. Now, ladies, I know you're looking at it going, well, I'm not a son. I'm a girl. <laughs> I know this. Well, it's okay. I have to be the bride of Christ. So you get to be a son today. <laughs> you get to be a son. Isn't that great? Because there's different metaphors. Okay? So God describing his people as a bride of Christ conveys a certain message. God describing his people as sons conveys a very specific message. So ladies, again, you're a son, I'm a bride, let's have fun. Now I have to describe to you, and I did some research on the idea of Roman adoption, because Paul is steeped in Roman law, Roman adoption. It's very interesting to note that he only uses the terms adoption in his writing to highly Roman cities. So 
Romans talks about adoption. Ephesians, second largest city in Rome, talks about adoption. Galatians talks about adoption. Thessalonians, Corinthians, they don't mention it. They're Greek cities. Their idea of adoption was different than Roman law. So let me describe to you Roman adoption. Roman adoption was typically of sons. There were some daughters adopted, but the vast majority of them were sons. And many of the times it was to make them an heir or they didn't have children. Okay? One interesting fact that I found out is that the uh, Caesars, it was very common that a Caesar would be adopted. In fact, in the first 200 years of the Roman Empire, nine Caesars were adopted. One of them, you might know, Caesar Augustus, written about in Luke 2. Tiberius Caesar, written about in Luke 3, the second emperor of Rome, also adopted. Again, not blood to Caesar, so adopted into the family. Nero is another one. We don't like Nero, but he was adopted. Trajan, he's the Caesar who expanded the Roman Empire to the largest it was. And if you watch Gladiator, Marcus Aurelius was also an adopted Caesar. Pretty amazing. Very common that they would adopt. But in ancient Roman society, you have to understand this, they would adopt them as adults. They would adopt them as adults. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to know what they were getting. Right? So you would know the character of the person. You would know much about the person. That's not how we do it. We do it of little kids. They did it of adults. So they would look and say, okay, I definitely want that guy. That guy, not a chance in the world do I want anything to do with him. But this guy, I'll take him. They adopted adults. Very interesting. But here are some major points of adoption that were on Paul's mind. One of them is that the adopted person lost all rights to his old family. All rights to his old family. They gained all the rights and privilege of the new family. He was fully a son. In the most literal sense, he got a new father. Okay, So lost connection with his family, new family became heir of his father's estate, even if other sons were naturally born to this father. Let's say the father was childless and then started having sons. It didn't touch any of his rights to sonship. Think of the difference between that and how maybe we might consider these things. But he says he is permanently a co-heir with the other children. Legally, his old life, so whatever he did prior to this time, was completely wiped out. If he had any debts, they were canceled, gone, gone, removed. They were regarded as an absolutely new person, entering into a new life, and the past had nothing to do with this. The past could not be held against him and his new family. Are we seeing some imageries of the New Testament? Finally, the adoption ceremony was carried out in the presence of seven witnesses. Seven witnesses. Why? Because if the father died and said that this guy was my son and he gets some of the stuff, some people would dispute it and say, he's not not a son. He doesn't receive any of this stuff. And they would call on the seven witnesses to say, yes, it's true. It's true. We were there. We saw it. It's totally true. Now think about this in terms of ourselves and our adoption to sonship. Once you and I were children of the world, weren't we? We were by nature children of wrath. 
God in his grace brought us over into his family. That old father, the devil, is no longer our father. We now have the father, God. Abba, father. We became heirs of all the riches of God. All of them. In the same regard that Jesus is an heir. We are co-heirs with Jesus because we're adopted with Jesus. Imagine that. The actual natural born son of God is Jesus Christ and we are co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus. That's a pretty awesome brother. The old life that we used to live over here has no, no power over us. All the things over here, the debts are canceled, things are erased, these things are removed. Removed from us because now we're over here. In God's family. And finally, when you and I doubt this or someone brings a charge against this, guess who's our witness? The Bible says that the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are God's children. You want to know whether or not you're a child? Guess what? The Spirit of God is witnessing to you, reminding you that you are his child. Because we're, we often doubt it, don't we? Ourselves, we doubt. Other people might cause it, but the Spirit is in us, testifying with us that we are really children of God. Look at this quote by J.I. Packer. Just to summarize, he says, we're not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us sinners as he loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus, it sounds ludicrous and wild. He says this, yet that and nothing less than that is what our adoption actually means. As he has loved and exalted Jesus, he loves and exalts us as his children. And why would he do this? Why would he do this? Well, he answers that. He says it was according to the purpose of his will. Now, before you think that that's a passive, again, this cold idea, it actually is the idea, and I think the NIV, if you have an NIV, it says the pleasure of his will. That's the idea. God looked forward to adopting children to himself. We did nothing to earn this. We did nothing to deserve this, and he did it out of love. It was his joy to adopt us. Now, I know that there are many families probably in this church who have adopted or even are adopted. One of the things I got to see was I got to go see Peter and Katie Webster adopt Ariana, their youngest adopted child. Church, it was amazing. What an amazing picture. They just go through and they're, they're talking to them about having Ariana brought into their family. And I'm not to the sake of embarrassing Peter, but Peter is weeping, weeping. So happy to have this little girl as his own. And I'm looking at it going, that's that's what we're reading. That's what we're reading right here. In love, he determined to have us as his kids. And the joy of the Father. Think about how heaven is said to rejoice over one sinner who repents. Because he says, hey, there's another adopted child. There's another child. Come here. It's not like, oh my goodness, another one i got to take care of? Another one? No, he's going, yes, bring him. Bring him in. Bring him. Oh, yes, there's another one. Yes, another adopted son. Come here, kids. Come here. In love doing that. Church, do you understand that that's true of you if you're in Jesus Christ? That God's not upset that he doesn't have more natural-born kids. He's so thrilled that he has kids who are literally against him, and he's making them his own and fashioning them to be holy and blameless, and he lovingly does this for all of us. 
That is a rich spiritual blessing that is ours because of Christ. That's amazing, church. And listen to me. The only thing that we are to do is what it says next. This is all done to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. That's the only response we have. The only response we have is praise God. You want to know what to do? Praise God. You want to go home and say, man, what are we supposed to do because of the sermon? Praise God. That's it. To the praise of his glorious grace. And I would argue that's exactly what we need to do. That's exactly what we need to do. He's blessed us in the beloved. Again, think of that term. This is my beloved son. But it's not just for him. He also loves his other children. And I love this. I love this. This is the reason why we gather here together. This is the reason why we sing. And listen, this is only part one. We've only looked at two spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Only two. And I'm full. I don't even know what to do right now other than praise God. And our confidence, again, think about him writing this to the Ephesians. They're probably overwhelmed with things in the world. And he immediately lifts them up and says, listen, guys, our confidence is in Christ. No matter what happens in this life, we are believers in Jesus Christ. And God has chosen us since before the foundation of the world to be his children. We're hidden with him. He loves us. That's never going to change. And this is all of his grace. So praise his grace. Praise him. Church, this is why we would never grow tired of singing and praising God with our, strong, with our strongest praise. I love poems and hymns of the past. As I was studying this passage, I could not help but think of a song I used to sing in the church I grew up in as like an eight-year-old boy. And for me, this song was kind of fun because it's kind of peppy. Um, and it's, it's a song where my brothers and I would kind of I guess, get a little ludicrous, and my mom would have to be like, stop it, stop it, embarrassing me. But it was the song, The Wonderful Grace of Jesus. If you know the chorus, it's kind of, it's kind of peppy. It goes like, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea, and on and on and on. But, but I want to quote this hymn. There's one verse in particular that just smashes the truth of this in my mind. And this is what it says. It says, Wonderful grace of Jesus. Listen. Wonderful grace of Jesus, reaching the most defiled by its transforming power, making him God's dear child, purchasing peace in heaven for all eternity. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. Then he says, wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, deeper than the mighty rolling sea. It's higher than the mountain. It's sparkling like a fountain. It's all sufficient grace for even me. It's broader than the scope of my transgressions. It's it's greater far than all my sin and shame. Oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise his name. Church, that's exactly what we want to do. We want to magnify the precious name of Jesus because it is all grace. It is all grace. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. And I hope as you sing, sing hard. Sing good. Sing to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is too much for us. Lord, you've done all of this stuff for us. Lord, I pray, I pray that we would understand and magnify you. 
Lord, that we would praise your glorious grace. Lord, the glory of your grace, the excellence of your grace. Lord, the fact that we too often, Lord, I too often look at what I do. Lord, let me see what you've done. Let me see this passage. Help us to see this passage by your spirit. Open our eyes to receive this. Help us to see that you've chosen us. You love us. We're yours and that will never change. So Lord, give us confidence, we pray. Lord, you, you alone be praised, we pray. Amen.